0: Twenty years ago, one of the more colorful media personalities in St. Louis lost his life in a way that drips with irony. It was helicopter crash for Alan Barklage. helicopters were his life and ultimately his death. The public knew him as a St. Louis traffic reporter. That's just part of the story, and that story is being told in the Riverfront Times. It's titled The Legend of Alan Barklage," and the reporter is Danny Wisentowski. He joins us in studio. Danny, great to have you with us. Great to be here. You've brought back a lot of memories for many media people who have been around uh, St. Louis for a lot of time, myself included. Uh, What drew you to the Alan Barklage story?
1: You know, it, it's its own convoluted kind of story. Of course, um, I uh, came to the area in 2013, and shortly after that, I was researching um, a short piece that was written by one of my colleagues, Sam Levin, about someone who was selling a homemade jetpack uh, on the internet. This led me to um, someone who had known Alan Barklage, um, and this this source uh, ended up not being part of any story, but he did tell me this incredible story about his friend who had, you know, survived all of this. Um, this drama, this this hijacking attempt, uh, killing a woman midair, and then dying in this helicopter accident, and it was filled with so much uh, drama and, and tragedy, and you know a figure that, that sounded something close to a superhero. Um, and so I just kept uh, being fascinated with it, and eventually, my interest in Alan Barklage actually led me to one of the hijackers who were trying who was trying to escape prison in 1978. Um, that became its own story, but I always wanted to put something together about Alan and that he deserved... Sort of a full, comprehensive accounting of a remarkable life, and so I'm glad I could I could finally do that.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating reading, and his heroics uh, started long before St. Louis. I mean, he was in Vietnam and was lucky to get out of that alive.
1: Um, that's very true. Um, you know, talking with his older brother Larry, who was also in Vietnam as a helicopter pilot. i uh, not in not in Vietnam. I, he flew around there, but uh, a friend of his, Gene Hofmeyer, another Vietnam pilot. This was an extremely dangerous uh, thing to be doing. Um, about a quarter of the flight school, you know, 300 people, um, died in these, but, and Barclage was said to have crashed multiple times, uh, photos in his scrapbook just kind of show him standing next to this, the wreckage of these helicopters, mm-hmm. you know, smiling. Um, and it was a smile that I think a lot of people ended up seeing here in St. Louis, but that's really where it, it got its start, that heroism. And the basis of your research, what kind of a guy was he just very, very generally? Um, there was everyone i've talked to about him said that he had this this running um sort of uh, self-aware sense of humor uh, mm-hmm. both about what he did in a helicopter the danger of it and this sort of full-throated confidence that he had um, I think those who were close to him got to see sort of a more nuanced version of that. But this was someone who was very comfortable behind a mic piloting a helicopter while doing reporting. And so he had this large, larger-than-life persona and a sense of fun that he seemed to really try to convey to those around him, even if it meant, you know, you know, putting someone in his helicopter and say, by the way, hold on. And they just diving that thing, you know, right at the ground.
0: Well, or, or the water. Let's tell that story because it's one of those that uh, most people who were around at the time certainly remember, and that was the rescue of a potential suicide. Tell the story.
1: You know, right. I had found, come across that story, um, KSDK had, you know, their their coverage of that. You know, he was their helicopter. He flew for KSDK Channel 5. Um, and that video uh, still lives online. Um, and so there was a man who, you know, parked his car on the Poplar Street Bridge, got out, got on the edge, um, and uh, was sort of literally being held onto by two police officers who were trying to keep him from jumping. Um, and Alan Barklage was in his helicopter flying over the scene, and he had gotten the same report from the ground. The man falls, and Alan Barklage, you know, dives the helicopter and hovers it, you know, only a few feet above the water. Uh, Off duty, found police officer named Jim Cavens was in the back and actually got out of his seat, crouched on the landing gear, and hoisted this guy onto the skid. The man holds on. He's exhausted, though, and as they take off, he falls yet again, and Alan Barclay, uh performs this move that a lot of people describe to me that just, you know, just this immediate flip of the helicopter to turn, you know, just a very fast 180, which I'm told is a very, very difficult maneuver that he would just pull off like, um, you know, like he was wiping his nose. You know, Caven's hoists this guy back onto the skid, and there are these images that were captured by some TV news crews of just this man holding on to the skid of the helicopter about five ten feet above the water, and he saved his life.
0: It's the story is remarkable, and they dropped the man off on a barge. Yes, nearby. the man was safe. He
1: dropped the man off. He managed to get him to a, a safe area where he was. Uh, you know, recovered and, and was safe.
0: You know, the, the story, as I started to say, is remarkable and uh, for many reasons, not the least of which is the, the the courage and the confidence that you mentioned. Had that skid touched the water, the helicopter would have been down and all would have been lost.
1: Yeah, people don't, you know, I certainly didn't realize, I've never flown a helicopter, mm-hmm. but a helicopter is um, just, you know, if you think about a car is running on a controlled explosion and a helicopter is running on just a controlled spin, That is, you just hopefully everything is counterbalancing themselves, um, and uh, certainly he, just you know, in his own exploits, the amount of danger that comes into you know pushing a helicopter and you know uh, trying to avoid even the smallest uh, error or smallest piece of damage uh, can be catastrophic to a helicopter. Yeah,
0: let's talk about the other story that got so much attention, and you alluded to it a little while ago, talking about the hijacker. Uh, l- let's
1: pick it up with, with how he became involved in this at all. Um, I think like a lot of Alan Barclay's stories, he was in the right place, at perhaps mm-hmm. the wrong time, but he was the mm-hmm. right person for mm-hmm. that situation. Um, he'd been working for a company um, called Foster Helicopters, uh, and they did a lot of commercial flights, and this was uh, 1978. The uh, woman had uh, reserved a charter flight to you know, ostensibly look at some flooded property around Cape Girardeau, uh, the cape And he, uh, you know, 30 minutes into the flight, she pulls out a pistol, yanks out the uh, the cord on his headset and says, we're flying east and we're going to go pick up a man named Garrett Trapnell and two other people. Garrett Trapnell was someone that she'd only met in person a month before, uh, according to the prison records. But she had fallen in love with this man who was a convicted airline hijacker um, and was – Someone who used particularly women, having married multiple women, robbed multiple banks, and really did whatever he wanted um, as far as getting out of prisons. That was what he was known for, and she fell for him. For whatever reason, um, we'll never really be able to ask her because as they get over the prison, Alan Barklage, as he would later recount to investigators, he uh, comes to the calculation in his mind that at some point if he goes through with this, the guards in the the prison are going to shoot him.
0: He was going. To, he, he was being told to land inside the prison walls. Yeah,
1: and the map that she carried with her had actually had a literal X <laughs> on the yard where he was to land. Um, but this was, you know, he was a pilot who had already faced gunfire from the ground, and he knew how easy it would be. And he also knew that the guards were thinking, you know, if they take out the pilot, this escape isn't going to happen. And so he tells her, um, you know, as they're you know positioning themselves over the prison to open the door. While they're in the air, it was a very heavy sliding door. Whether this was true or not from a technical standpoint, I can't say. But as she's doing this, she moves the pistol uh, to her left hand and she takes her finger off the trigger. And he turns around, he completely disengages with the controls, and he grabs the pistol out of her hand. And then he turns back around to make sure that... To continue flying the helicopter. The helicopter is at that point, you know, if you're un- an uncontrolled helicopter is not the thing you want. It is just a spinning catastrophe without someone holding on to it. Um, and he notices that she is reaching into the briefcase that she had brought with her. That briefcase is filled with guns that are meant for the prisoners. And according to Barclage, you know, she says something like, it doesn't matter, I have another. And... He then fires, uh, he pulls the trigger five times, one is a misfire, three bullets strike her, one through the head, and uh, according to accounts, he is just wildly shooting, and he blows out one of his own windows. He then again turns back around to control this helicopter and lands, you know, not on the X where uh, he was supposed to. Outside the wall. Yeah. Well, he he lands next to an administrative building, which is within, you know, there are several additional fences Hmm. between now him and the prisoners who are... Um, the the prisoners who are waiting there um, don't actually see the helicopter, um, but they can hear the engine cut off, and they don't see the helicopter where it's supposed to be. And that's when, you know, uh, the aftermath begins. Right. Well, he
0: regretted the fact that he killed this woman
1: for the rest of his life. He He had actually hoped that that would not have been the case. It's very true, and I think it is sort of the two parts of him where on one hand, I think to those who were, he was closest to, he expressed, you know, the desire that this didn't have to happen this way, you know, perhaps, you know, if, she, you know, if he could have talked her out of it, which he said he tried to do, that, um, and that he wished that, uh, you know, his wife tells, told me, uh, his wife at the time... Uh, that he'd always wish the newspaper articles that were written later, which were all heroics and all, you know, kind of that, that wonderful kind of tabloid style that existed in a way in some of these events, that he wished they could have said that he didn't mean to kill her, um, that this was not what he'd wanted.
0: He did, years later, he did uh, interviews with the KSDK television, and uh, we have one clip here of him talking about his reaction to that, uh, that prison escape situation. I would say the dominating thought that I have when I think back on that is uh, there may have been a way to do that without shooting a person. That still bothers you? Right. Was there a way I could have done it? You know, could I have talked her out of it? Well, that didn't happen, obviously, but uh, he did have his, ha- have his regrets, uh, needless to say. You know, in that uh, same interview with KSDK, he also made reference to the, uh, the rescue uh, on the Mississippi River. Let's hear what he had to say about that. I consider myself lucky to be in that position at that time to be able to do that. Um, as it turned out, if in fact we saved a person's life, you know, thank God for that. We did it. Alan Barkridge, a 1991 interview with uh, KSDK. Uh, let's again talk a little bit more about the man because uh, all of these heroics and all of these interesting things that he was involved in uh, are just great stories. But he was also pretty active in the community as well.
1: It's true. You know, he, with his status as sort of local media celebrity, which was really something that mattered, um, you know, in the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. when he did a lot of his, uh, his work. You know, he was appearing at fundraisers and charities, um, looking through the archi- newspaper archives, you would find his name popping up in sort of, you know, see Alan Barklage in the yellow jet copter, you know, at, you know whatever car dealership mm-hmm. he was at. Um, he was really, really active. And the stations that he was a part of really, you know, trying to leverage that familiarity. Um, But I also talked with people, you know, he would show up at schools. He would, you know, meet school children. And these were memories that people would have, you know, years later, my own colleague, Daniel Hill, who you spoke with, actually sat in Alan Barklage's helicopter as a child Mm. um, when he stopped by a Hardee's. Um, as an aside, that particular Hardee's, I believe, which is near St. Charles, was where barklidge would just land his helicopter after the traffic run. Um, he was certainly known for just turning up wherever he wanted with his helicopter, which was sort of the the delight of that vehicle for him.
0: Easy to do uh, with a, with, a, with a helicopter, much more so than with other things I can think of. Okay. You've also written about another person involved in the Alan barklidge story and involved in this uh, this. Uh, so-called prison break uh, down in Marion, and that's Martin McNally, who was a, another hijacker like Trapnell, and he was involved in a hijacking here in St. Louis in 1972.
1: Right. The um, The various characters of this story certainly don't make for an easy telling in, in one spot, but Martin McNally, um, as you'd mentioned, hijacked a plane out of out of Lambert in 1972, hoping to mimic the successful um, sort of hijacking and robbery. That uh, was sort of, you know, trademarked by a man named D.B. Cooper. And essentially, you would hijack a plane. You would demand a ransom. You would then have the plane go back up into the air, jump out with a parachute, and disappear. Uh, He almost got it all right, except when he jumped out, uh, he had never uh, used a parachute before. Um, And when he jumped out, the force of pulling the parachute dislodged the bag of money that contained about $500,000, and the last he ever saw of it was it disappearing into the clouds. That money was later found by a soybean farmer in Peru, Indiana, um, and was returned. Um, uh, McNally actually now lives in St. Louis. He was paroled in 2010 after 37 years in various maximum security prisons. Uh, his story is uh, quite interesting. Um, but you know, one of the things when I began to interview him um, was just this sense of, of awareness and regret of what he and Garrett Trapnell had done to the Oswald family, and in, in many ways McNally is not uh, a picture of regret over his previous life. This was someone who who was very decisive, who did what he wanted, who wanted to escape for a reason, who wanted to rob a plane for a reason. Um, but I think now, in you know, he's now in his early seventies the manipulation of Barbara Oswald, you know, promising her a life that she didn't have. These were letters uh, that Trapnell was writing her. McNally was sort of in on it and encouraging this. Um, And of course, there is a double tragedy to that family as well. And that Robin Oswald, uh, Barbara's daughter, incredibly hijacked an additional plane in 1979 on the day um, that Trapnell and McNally were to be, um, the jury verdict was returned. The 17-year-old teenager, the daughter, Barbara Oswald, gets on a plane in St. Louis toward Kansas City, and five minutes before it lands, she reveals what she claimed were dynamite but were actually road flares and creates this entire second drama. And for Alan Barklage to return to him, this was, I think, deeply painful. Um, and his wife said that when he ended up getting a call from the FBI, you know, that woman who you shot in the helicopter, her daughter is now hijacking another plane, he immediately offered himself a as a hostage as an exchange and he thought that that this trauma that he had caused Mm -hmm. was now coming back to him and he would have some responsibility robin didn't take him up on that offer and she event that hijacking was eventually resolved peacefully and uh she was arrested and i think released after being in a juvenile institution but again alan barklage's life just kept intersecting with these incredible moments And those who are still around who remember them, you know, Martin McNally, who now is living with with these memories of crime, and those who remember Alan Barklage, I think everyone I've talked to are just sort of still astounded just to think that one person lived through all of this stuff.
0: You know, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, this, this is uh, truth is stranger than fiction. I happened to be at uh, the at, uh, Lambeth Airport that night and was there for many hours when McNally was. Uh, oh my gosh. And, and and I think people who were around then will remember this. And that was that there was a fellow who was listening to the traffic in a bar across the street from the airport, who was so incensed by what was going on as the FBI was negotiating with McNally that he went downstairs, got in his car, a Cadillac, Crashed through the fence at Lambert, got under the runway, and drove right into the nose of the of the American airliner that McNally was uh, negotiating with uh, in with the uh, with the FBI. The plane had just been refueled. If it had hit at one of the wings, it would have blown the thing sky high. I but know
1: it's it's incredible. And that guy, um, David Hanley, David Hanley um, later claimed to the Associated Press that he had no idea why he did it, and he had lost all memory, even of of the inciting emotion that had caused him to do this. And uh, there's always one other crazy aspect to this <laughs> to this story.
0: He's lucky he survived because it could yes. have been it uh, could have been turned out very much. He was much, uh, he was, he was, was heavily
1: injured, injured, but he survived. Yeah. Okay.
0: All right. Back to uh, Alan Barkledge. Let's talk about the end. Um, he, he was always tinkering with uh, his toys, and uh, he he found one that turned out to be ill fated. Obviously,
1: it's it's really you know tragic. Leading you know, Alan Barclidge, uh was an aficionado of go karts um, and a tinkerer, mm-hmm. and from what I've been told. Um, this helicopter that one would buy in a kit called the Revolution Mini 500. Um, several hundred were produced. Not all of them were made. They cost about twenty or $30,000. They were very, very light. They were single-seater. They did not have, um, you know, crumple zones as one would find in a car, but there were versions of that as well in helicopter landing gear. Um, but it was extremely fragile. And he believed, uh, because he had done so much tinkering with this go-kart engine, which shared... Uh, mechanical similarities with the Rotex engine that was inside the helicopter. Unfortunately, as later investigations would show this, this engine was not designed to be you know, cranked at full power all the time, which is what a helicopter engine needs. Um, and it had, there was I managed to find the owner's manual from the early 90s where it actually says, this engine occasionally turns off. <clears throat> Do not use this engine if you ever have to make an unpowered landing. And anyone who's been in a helicopter I think knows in a similar way that a plane, even without its engine, you can glide it down to the ground if you have enough momentum. A helicopter can do something called autorotation, which again is as long as you have momentum, you can still use the 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 air moving past your own rotors. Unfortunately, the the error or the the malfunction that occurred uh, on September nineteenth, nineteen ninety eight, um, according to the the later uh, investigations, the engine just seized, and it appears. Um, that Alan tried to clear um, some power lines that were near there. And unfortunately, clearing those power lines used up the momentum he had, and the aircraft just dropped straight down to the ground um, without you know, the autorotation, sort of the, the gliding sort of action that mm-hmm. perhaps he was going for and something that he specifically knew how to do and it trained people in. Um, but it terribly injured his, his neck and his spine, He was in a medically induced, well, kept alive uh, perhaps by uh, medical technology for several more days and then finally died on September 25th, 1998.
0: We're going to have to wrap this up, but we have a caller who maybe has something to add to the story. John in St. Charles, go ahead, but uh, make it quick, John, if you would. Yeah, I'd just like to mention I was a charter pilot in my younger days. And during that period, the airplane got hijacked to uh, Merriam. I was able to fly the FBI uh, negotiator, Mr. Flynn, to uh, Marion, and I had no idea what was going on. And I flew the guys there and uh, got to witness the entire thing behind the scenes. Oh, wow. What an experience for you. Do you, you recognize the name Flynn, Denny? No. Interesting story, John. Thank you for bringing us uh, into it. We, we have to go, I'm sorry to say, but uh, thank you for giving us a call. Denny, would you like to have known Alan Barklish?
1: I, I would have loved to meet him. I, I think the combination of confidence that he had to have in his own abilities but also uh, the level of thrill-seeking. There was there was an element of exuberance and delight at the things that he could do in a helicopter and the way the world looked and looking over the scrapbook that he kept, uh, you know, to get a, a sense of the things that were important to him. And there were these photos that he took of the arch, you know, Piercing the clouds above St. Louis, or the various helicopters he rode, and even the helicopters that were destroyed by you know Viet Cong you know uh, gunfire, or another helicopter that had just ex- almost exploded as it took off. But he he kept these things with him because he saw part of himself in this machine and and in that that arena in the sky. And I I would have loved to just to hear him talk about what it would be like to fly and what things he loved to do or how he could make things that seem so difficult or or dangerous so easy and to have so much fun doing it. And I, I think those are the things I wish... I could hear him talk about today.
0: Take it from me, he would not have been reluctant to talk about flying. <laughs> he loved to talk about it, and uh, as I say, many people in the media knew him fairly well because he ferried us all around at one time or another, and frequently many times. Danny Wisinkowski, thank you so much for being with us, and thank you for your stories in the Riverfront Times, mm-hmm. with with photos as well, so some of the things we've talked about you can actually see. That's Danny Wisinkowski of the Riverfront Times.